0: All right, let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you uh, being grateful for your mercies of today. We thank you for them and thank you for one another and that we can gather like this, talk about your glorious Son, his works. Thank you for the word that you've left for us that is so clear. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our hearts and eyes and enables us to believe and receive the things that you've said. Lord, we uh, pray for little Jacob in San Diego and for Bill uh, that you would intervene in, in, in these lives. We thank you for your mercy and your promises. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are close to concluding the section on our Lord's death and crucifixion. And where we are tonight is down here in these last two items. Uh John's account of Jesus' removal from the cross and burial has quite a bit of unique information. In the last couple of weeks we we use the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we and we use all three of those somewhat together. And John has an, quite a bit of unique information. And the other one other unique event uh, before we get to the resurrection is the day after, if the Lord was uh, crucified on Friday, the, the day after uh, the Jews come to Pilate and ask that a guard be put on the tomb. So those are our two uh, subjects here for tonight. And so let's just go on over to John chapter 19. And verse 31, and that's where we will uh, begin here tonight. Uh, He has quite a bit of additional information. And therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So this is sometime mid or later in the afternoon, uh, perhaps 3 o'clock or even later, maybe 4 o'clock, I I don't know, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't quite know when the sun sets at that part of of the world. And the Sabbath is the next day, and the Sabbath would be Saturday the next day. So they are asking Pilate, Um, They don't want the bodies on the cross uh, on the Sabbath. And so they they go to Pilate and make this request. Now breaking the victim's legs increased the difficulty breathing, caused you to die by asphyxiation, but it was a way to accelerate the death of those being crucified. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now you remember Mark tells us, it was Mark Mark or Luke, I'm not sure, that um, Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. Pilate sent the centurion to verify that Jesus was dead and the centurion reported back to Pilate. So... Um, <clears throat> Jesus died sooner than Pilate and others would have expected. Um, so they broke the legs of the other two soldiers, but when they came to Jesus, saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now, John finds great significance in this particular event. And so he interrupts the narrative at that point. And we have verse 35 and 36. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. Okay. So he interrupts uh, the account there. Let's we'll, we'll go over this in some detail. We'll begin with the blood and the water matter that he finds very significant and makes a point to point out Um <clears throat> We don't know why the soldier pierced Jesus' side. Perhaps one more test to see if Jesus really was dead. Whatever the reason, John sees this great significance in this. Now the medical folks tell us various explanations of the blood and the water uh, separated, or at least separated enough to where you could see both. Uh, If his heart was pierced, Possibly could be the source of the blood in the cavities of his heart and water in the sac that surrounds your heart. That's one medical explanation. The other is uh, those who have received a lot of chest trauma. Um, uh, the the chest cavity, you can have blood and water in the chest cavity. They're di- different densities. And so it could separate and when the side of his chest cavity was pierced, you could get blood and water. Uh, Those are some of the explanations of the physical description of what what happened here. Now, what John is doing is emphasizing Jesus' death and that his death as a man and and that he is dead beyond any shadow of doubt. Now, he's doing this not so much to counter modern-day anti-resurrection theories, that Jesus really did not die but recovered when he was placed in the tomb. And a lot of times you'll hear that about this passage is that is that the reason John is uh, talking about this is it's the proof that he really is dead. And I, I think it is proof that he really is dead. So, I, but John probably has another reason for pointing this out. And, and the reason is, is the early docetic heresy that taught that Jesus was not really a man. He was not human. He was just, you know, uh, whatever. It's some representation of being a man, but he really was not human. And that's a very early heresy in the church that John was actually already dealing with. Uh, By the time John wrote his gospel and uh, certainly by the time he wrote his letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there was that false teaching and apostasy already in circulation. And we can see that when we jump on over to 1st John chapter 4 verses 2 through 3. And uh, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So, uh, John had to defend this cardinal truth that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom the church believed to be the Messiah, had come in the flesh the flesh, that is, had come in human nature. Because there were those who, for whatever reason, were denying Jesus' true humanity. And uh, therefore that he truly died and, and all of this. So look at verse 3. And every spirit that, uh, that does not confess um, that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. So John is already dealing with this heresy that Jesus is not human. And that's probably why he's drawing the attention to the uh, blood and the water. There's a a connection to that uh, in that in many strands of Jewish and Hellenistic thought at the time in the first century, the human body consists of two elements: blood and water. that—that okay, that is Hellenistic thinking and Jewish thinking in the first century. That our body, you know, they're pretty close, right? We're ninety. What what percentage of water are we? <laughs> Some very high percentage seventy five okay uh, so their their thinking is we we are possessed of, of blood and water that that's our constitution and and the very fact that blood and water comes out of Jesus shows us that he is he is human like the rest of us, and that's probably john 's reason for recording that uh, that for us now interestingly. One other place, one of the very early confessions of faith that Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy chapter um, 3, 16. Notice how this starts. And without controversy, great is... And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness... Look at that, God was manifested, what? In the flesh. (laughs) That's the first statement of of this. It could have been a song, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, But there it is right there that God was manifested or He was manifested, depending on which Greek text uh, you're basing your New Testament on. But the point is here is that He was manifest in the flesh, meaning in human nature. So um, that's likely what's going on here in, in John uh, at this point. Any thoughts or questions on that uh, before we would, we would proceed? Anybody? Mm. You know, I didn't test this one. Right now, <laughs> maybe they uh thought he would still save himself. he was what maybe they thought he would still save himself i I don't understand that's why they he could come back alive. I don't know um you mean they wanted to harm him further so that that he couldn't come back. Maybe, yeah, we don't, we yeah, we don't know the reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, they went to break his legs and and didn't, uh, and then uh, I think it's along the lines of what they call coup de gras, you know you familiar? No, you'll have to explain that, that expression. Well, when, when, when you sword fights and, and you, you just about, uh, 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 how do you say, uh, terminate somebody in a sword fight, oh. but they're still alive, and you kill them um. as, a, as a matter of, of grace so they don't suffer. Coup de gras. Okay. Maybe. Well, John finds, John takes, takes advantage of that happening, the blood and the water, and we think he's doing that to make a point about Jesus' humanity. And so, um, okay. Um, now, the next verse there, um, we well, need to talk about this one a bit and he, and you see, this is, he makes a big deal out of this testimony, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, You know, can we stick a few more pronouns into that short sentence to 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 help us uh, be be able to understand that uh, that statement? I'm not I'm not uh, criticizing the the Holy Spirit and the the Word of God, but um, there, of course, is extended discussion if the author who wrote this who most believe to be John, there's, is he referring to himself or is he referring to someone else as who's the witness here? Is the writer of the gospel the witness or is the writer of the gospel referring to someone else who is really the witness? And I have no simple answer for you. There is no simple answer grammatically So what is going on in this verse? Okay, so let's just assume John's writing the gospel, okay? So John is writing, and he who has seen has testified. So the question is, is John referring to himself or to someone else in that statement? And his testimony is true. So John could very well be referring to someone else. He who has testified, he who is seen has testified. There was an eyewitness to the blood and the water. And John could be testifying to that person that his witness is true. John himself didn't witness that, but John knows someone else who did witness it. And John is writing here saying that person's witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. Okay, and John knows that the other witness is telling the truth. That's one possible way to read this. Another possible way to read this is there's only John here and John is referring to himself as the witness. Okay, John is writing, and he who has seen... John saying I'm the one who has seen has testified I'm the one who have seen and I'm testifying and his testimony my testimony is true and he that is John knows that he is telling the truth so um so that you may believe. Now, I tend to lean that it it is John. John is referring to himself in a somewhat enigmatic way uh, in in what he's writing there. But the overall point of what he's saying there is uh, this is true. This is witnessed and it is absolutely true. And it's foundational. And, and the reason of all this first-hand testimony and witness is what? So that you may believe. Okay? And believe correctly. Uh, now we do know that John was definitely in the vicinity, wasn't he? Because we know he was near enough to the cross when, when Jesus had that interaction with Mary, his mother, and John. And and so we know John the Apostle was there, so that puts him definitely in the vicinity uh, uh, of witnessing this. If he if they were still there later in the afternoon, when the soldiers came to break the legs, were was John still there? We we don't know for certain. Um, now, interestingly, some say that the witness here is the centurion. And that after Jesus had died, the centurion made the confession, truly this was the Son of God. Remember that? And so some have suggested that the centurion is is actually the witness that John is referring to here in this passage. Now we know the centurion was there late late in the afternoon, but uh, we also know that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, or Mary the mother of Jesus, were there all the way uh, till the burial because they witnessed, we saw that last week in the Synoptic Gospels, they witnessed Jesus being put, be placed in the tomb by Joseph uh, and Nicodemus. So, uh, yeah. And so what is John doing? Here John is doing the very thing that he's called to do. Jesus called John to be what? A witness. Specifically to be a witness. And so I think that's why John uses this kind of language. He knows that Jesus called him for this very purpose, that his disciples are the witnesses par excellence of his death and resurrection. And he called them to testify accordingly so here John is doing that very thing. He's called to be a witness of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and, so, and he who has seen, that's the, that's the witnessing part, the actual seeing. He who has seen what? Has testified. That's the bearing witness. Has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. And the reason is, is so that you may believe. Uh, And yeah, that's the reason, so that we may believe the reality of this, the historic historic reality of this. Jesus was a true man. He who became flesh. Uh, John now brings in the testimony of earlier Scripture, doesn't he? Uh, Verse 36 For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. Now, John's focusing on the fact that Jesus' legs were not broken, and he sees another fulfillment of scripture uh, in this. And uh, this can be coming from two places. Uh, uh, Psalm um, 34 19 through 20 is where we find these words uh pretty pretty liter- literally many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all he guards all his bones not one of them is broken so that's pretty explicit Uh, And it's possible, there can be more than one reference, it's possible that this is one of the references, but I I really think John probably has um, the Passover lamb and the requirement in the law in Exodus 12 verse 46 more in mind, okay, and this is about uh, the Passover lamb, In one house it shall be eaten, you shall not carry any of its flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. And that was the law concerning the the Passover lamb. None of the bones of that lamb were to be broken. And when we read the Gospel of John, we see him... Uh, He brings the Old Testament in in a way that has much more to do with the types and the shadows and his fulfillment than kind of the literal way the synoptics do it. So this would be particularly like John uh, to be referring to this part of the law about the Passover lamb. Jesus, of course, is a fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He's the true Passover lamb, and just as the law required, not not one of his bones are broken. So, uh, thank you, John, uh, for uh, making that connection uh, for us. Um, anybody want to offer a thought or a question? Sure, I'll go. Right here to James. Right there behind me, okay. the James. Mm. All right. Um, my question was going to be because uh, it's coming from the perspective of. Put that the, uh, mic a little closer. Sure. Can you hear me now? Y- y- yeah. Yeah. All righty. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, my. Uh, okay. So it sounds like the perspective is of the, as you were saying, the, the lamb uh, that was going to. Passover lamb. Sure. Um, what audience was the Gospel of John written to? Um, <clears throat> I think he has a Gentile, somewhat of a Gentile audience in mind. And the reason being is, one of the reasons for that, a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons is, is he explains things along the way that he knows Gentiles would not understand, mm. not being Jews. And... Um, uh, he certainly has Jews in mind also, but with John's emphasis that the gospel is for the world, that's one of his particular emphases in the gospels. The Messiah has come not to judge the world, but to save the world. So I think he really carries with him um, the, a, a, a Gentile readership in understanding the gospel. But at the same time, he is very, very hard on the Jews in this gospel. I mean the things he the way he portrays and how he represents the unbelieving, especially the chief priest and the rulers, and the stuff that he says in John chapter twelve to explain their unbelief. So he he has both in mind. Uh, so Okay. So yeah, it sounds pretty detailed as he's going into that with uh, Gentile believers, so I'm just surprised, my brain is trying to wrap around, yeah. so, but um, I think that's pretty much my question. Yeah, so um, this isn't John's normal formula. John normally doesn't introduce something from the Old Testament with this kind of formula. Usually that formula is more like uh, Matthew would use. Uh, <clears throat> so but and you know he's writing this this gospel. You know he's he's had a lot of time to think about the Old Testament. You know he's writing uh, this gospel. Maybe I don't know in the mid '60s. So you know he they've had 30 years to go back and read their Old Testaments. And that is what they're doing, and they and, and and they're realizing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, uh, <clears throat> and now that is coming out uh, here as he as he writes this gospel, and he reaches to the point of his legs not being broken, he thinks of that passage, you know, and of course, the, Jesus promised them Holy Spirit guidance. <laughs> In what they wrote, we see that in John fourteen, as the special witnesses, I will bring to your remembrance everything that I've that I've said to you. So, um, okay, Uh, let's see. So let's go back there to John and go a little further. And none of this is in the Synoptics. and another scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced and it's interesting John seems to relate the piercing here to the sword he was just pierced you know I'm, I'm just pointing that out, the, the fact, the way these are connected, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Uh, is John thinking in, in the, the nails, or is John thinking that they pierced his side uh, with the sword? I, I don't have an answer for that, but I thought I should just point out the linguistic connection here in the context uh, regarding the, the piercing. He uses, doesn't he use that word up here? when when he says that yeah yeah he uses the same term right here right the soldier's pierced his side and uh they shall look upon him whom they have pierced so there's a linguistic con you know connection right there so i just i'm just pointing that out uh, it's good when you read that you always try to fo- follow those kind of connections. Oftentimes they'll lead you to good places uh, as as you read. And there, of course, uh, we're coming from Zechariah 12.10 in the Old Testament. And there's even a reference in the book of Revelation. But let me throw up Zechariah 12.10. And this is quite a chapter about the Lord having mercy <clears throat> on israel and and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. then they will look on me whom they have whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning, and it describes all this mourning, all this mourning that goes on, and yet there is going to be... Um, yeah, the chapter division is kind of uh, unfortunate. We should read right across on these chapters. It talks all about this mourning, And in that day, in that day here is the same day here, okay? It's the same day, all right? You got that? It's the same day. And we read down in the chapter 13, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. So in that day... It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It's quite a passage, the, the, the whole context of that prophecy being invoked, um, and especially, of course, the opening of a fountain for sin and uncleanness. We know that can only be referring to the death of Christ uh, <clears throat> as we read our Old Testaments. That's what that's referring to. And God is going to have mercy on the house of David. And, and so John, John uh, sees uh, Jesus uh, fulfilling or beginning to fulfill that, that passage. The other passage that uh, is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, this is a future reference. Um, He who has any ear to hear, let him hear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... Um, Why am I not finding what I'm thinking... Revelation 2 7. I might have a wrong reference here in my notes. Revelation 1 7. My notes have it right. I don't have it right. Revelation 1 7. Yeah, here it is. Okay. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. It's interesting in the Zechariah passage, we have all the mourning. There, it seems to be confined to Israel and so forth. But this same uh, those who pierced him shows up here in Revelation, and now it's, it's all the nations of the earth are mourning. And that's not a good mourning. I don't believe here it's a good mourning in Revelation chapter 1. It's the, the reality of judgment. Uh, and um, so here we would think we're referring to hands and feet, they who pierced him and not... <laughs> No, you know, not the soldier in the side. Um, so, Okay. Anybody with a comment? So John shows us those fulfilled prophecies. That's unique to his gospel. All right, let's keep going. Now, we met Joseph of Arimathea in Luke, so, but John has something also to say about Joseph of Arimathea. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. So let me repeat something I said last week. The fact that Jesus gave the body, Jesus, that Pilate gave the body to to, uh, Joseph is an indication that Pilate really did not believe Jesus was an insurrectionist (laughs) because they never turned the executed bodies of insurrectionists over to the family. They left them out for the birds to eat them and all kinds of horrible stuff. And so um, this is actually unusual and that's gonna come into play when the Jews are kinda caught by surprise that Jesus' sympathizers may have his body. And that's going, I believe, is going to why why they get motivated to want to put a guard on the tomb. So we'll connect that a little bit down the road. So now here we have Joseph, uh, Joseph again, and um, the Jews in Jerusalem had decided. uh, Now let's back up here. Let me get in the right place. So um, John also reports. Joseph was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Yeah, I see that statement right there. For fear of the Jews. Now, what did, uh, what did Mark say about Joseph in this regard? He used an interesting word when Joseph showed up on the scene. Joseph did something that Mark says. He, and Joseph, taking courage... <laughs> went in to Pilate to ask for the body. Okay, so in Mark, we've got a reference to Joseph, Joseph, is Joseph risking himself and taking courage. And now in John here, we seem to kind of have the opposite, uh, that he was a disciple, uh, but uh, in secret because of the fear of the Jews. Now, Normally, in the Gospel of John, such a statement about Joseph would be into the category of what? It would be in the category of non saving, spurious faith in the Gospel of John, that type of comment. You know, and they believed in him, and then Jesus said, well, he said to those who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you shall be my disciples indeed. And of course, they professed they believed in him, but they didn't abide in his word. Or John chapter 2, you know, at the feast, many believed in him, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. There's like four, I think, four instances in the Gospels like that. And normally, this kind of a description would place you into that category of a spurious, non-saving faith in the Gospel of John. But uh, we know from Mark that Joseph is risking himself to do this, uh, And he's risking himself in a couple ways. And one of the ways is is that uh, he likely is risking severe rejection of the rest of the Sanhedrin. Remember, he's a Sanhedrin member. He's a chief council member. And so now he's actually willing openly (laughs) to be associated in a very, very special way uh with Jesus. You know, he goes into Pilate and associates himself with Jesus and he takes the body uh, and 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 uh so he is now out in the open associating himself with Jesus. And of course, you know, Mark's statement I think uh verifies that. So um I'm I'm positive about Joseph that he's not in that other category that you begin to realize is in the Gospel of John. So he risks this severe rejection, and you know the Jews, the Sanhedrin had what what law? Uh, I don't know if you'd call it a law, but what what command had the Sanhedrin issued there in Jerusalem about people in relation to Jesus? kick him out, exactly right. If anybody uh, confessed faith that Jesus was the Messiah, they would kick him out of the synagogue. They would be put out of the synagogue. And so, I mean, it's possible they could have put Joseph out of the Sanhedrin. Um, I don't know how the politics of that, but um, so that's as much as we know about this uh, dear man um, so, so while Joseph is seeking to get Jesus' body from Pilate, we are surprised that Nicodemus appears on the scene. And John has been building his gospel, hasn't he? He does that. He Nicodemus shows up three different times in John's gospel. And here, all of a sudden, Nicodemus shows up. So Pilate gave permission to Joseph, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And remember, last week we said, how could Joseph be strong enough to do all this by himself? Well, he wasn't by himself. He had Nicodemus helping him. And, and so, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And this is why this confirms, I don't know who paid for this, maybe Joseph paid for it, because what, is, what does Matthew say about Joseph? It, he was rich, that's right, Matthew says he was rich. Now, did that have anything to do with prophecy? Yeah, it's Isaiah, it's that enigmatic um, saying, and they made his grave with the wicked, and there's a grammatical break there. I like the translations that tell you grammatically it's just broken off at that point, and that's what those dashes mean in the translation. It's almost like something else interrupts <laughs> the flow here. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And then it goes on. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is Isaiah 53, 9. It's, the references are, are, I think, are in your notes there, too. That's Isaiah 53.9, yeah. So now we find out that, you know, 75 or 100 pounds, depending on which translation you're reading, that was very expensive. <laughs> so uh, probably Joseph paid the bill there, and Nicodemus rounded up, uh, rounded up the spices. Now, Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, okay? And uh, so let's get back to John here. <clears throat> okay, so Nicodemus also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and um, about a hundred pounds. Now, Nicodemus is also risking a rejection, but Nicodemus has already stuck his neck out. Some do you guys remember uh, when uh, when that was? No, in John chapter three. Well, he still stuck. In. Well, that he went by night. Okay, in in John chapter three, he went, uh, and I think, of course, he went to see Jesus by night because. He wanted to do it in secret. I I think that's pretty clear. And in chapter 3, he's like, how can these things be? And, you know, but, um, no, the other case where things begin to change is in John chapter 7. And this has to do when the when they sent the officers, oh and keep this in mind too, the officers here are the temple police. Okay, This is not the Roman guard. We're going to have a difficult passage in Matthew to try to understand who guarded the tomb. Was the tomb guarded by the temple police or was it guarded by a group of Roman soldiers? And I'm not gonna have an easy black and white answer on that, on that one. And this this term's gonna come up. The temple police are the officers here. And they the Sanhedrin had sent the temple police to arrest Jesus. And they got captivated when they were listening to Jesus. And so the officers are reporting back now to the Sanhedrin. And And they came back empty-handed. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So Nicodemus stuck his neck out there, some. Okay. They answered him, they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? I mean they derided him of course they also slammed Galilee by the way in, in that statement Galilee was not thought of very high by the by the Pharisees and the and the chief priests and can anything good come out of the Galilee or out of Nazareth Was in Galilee in the region of Galilee so are you also are you also from Galilee search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee so this is Nicodemus beginning here uh, uh, to, to speak in Jesus' defense or at least to slow down the, the, his condemnation. And so, so we're, we're somewhat uh, delighted when we see Nicodemus show up a third time in John's Gospel and he's giving uh, Jesus an honorable burial. Here. So they took the body of Jesus bounded in stripes of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now we know from the Synoptic Gospels that was Joseph of Arimathea. He already had his uh, tomb uh, hewn out of the rock, uh, and that's the tomb. Uh, So they laid Jesus, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So what's the point? Why Why is that in the record? why 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 is john telling us about the preparation day and the tomb was nearby the sabbath is going to begin and they need to get all this done before sunset that's likely the point uh, so there we've made it <laughs> we've made it uh, to the tomb and we haven't been in a hurry but that's fine <laughs> It's about four minutes to eight. We don't have time to do the, um, the Jews. The next day, the Jews are going to request that the tomb be guarded. Some very interesting things for us to go over there because they said that deceiver when he was alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. That's really significant. They somehow they knew that, and uh, we'll get into that, Lord willing, next week. Do you have uh, any comments or questions this evening? Mm. Yeah, the microphone. As long as we got time, I was thinking about the uh, that question about who said, you know, my test the testimony of him is true, was it John or. Somebody else. And that is exactly almost how John ends the gospel, too, with that same phrase, oh, right? Oh, yeah. At the very end of uh, John, yeah, let's look that up. he says, um, and we, yeah, in verse tw- 24, it's he says that chap- we know that his testimony is true. Yeah, chapter 21, verse 24, John okay. says. And I think it's, I think John's talking about himself in, in both places. Yeah, this is, the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true, yeah, thank you. I should reference that 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 sounds like John, and it sounds like first John too, yes, the beginning of first John yeah, the witness yeah. Yeah we'll, yeah, we'll get into chapter 21 when we deal with the resurrection. It, it's, it, we have some challenges there as to who wrote 21. I, I think John wrote 21. Do you think, Fred, do you think? Yeah, okay. It's not without some difficulties, so, though. But, yeah, I mean, there there are those that think John didn't write this gospel. And there's even... There, there's some conservative, there's some solid conservatives that think that John didn't write this gospel. I'm not one of them, but, um, yeah. There's a lot of similarities, though, from second John to this, so it's a little hard to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, there's, Papias' enigmatic statement, and he's one of the earliest um, he's not an apostolic father but he's really, really early, early. As early as those guys, he makes this statement about Presbyter John. He makes this statement like there's two Johns. And that statement has <laughs> generated oh, so much. There, I forget the name of the, there's Presbyter John and and there's another John. And, and he makes this it sounds like he's talking about two Johns. All right. And one of them wrote a spiritual gospel. <laughs> and a lot has stemmed out of that ancient uh, not scriptures, not a scripture document, but so. Uh, mm. Anybody else? With a comment, but thanks for pointing out that verse, Uh, Fred. Okay. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we see your hand in these things, and we see our Lord um, uh, being buried according to your word and according to your scripture, and none of his bones being broken, as you from so long ago gave us the types and the shadows. That Passover lamb that, whose blood was splattered on their doors, the doors of even your people, Lord, uh, they needed the Passover lamb as we so desperately need him. And so we thank you for that we have believed through your word and through the witness, Lord, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your prayer that you prayed in John 17, Lord, that you prayed not simply for those 11. Lord, but you pray for us who would believe in you through their word, the witness of the word that we've heard from them even tonight. So thank you for these things, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.